0: Written by Edward Thomas and published in 1909. This book explores southern England and how it was in the early 1900s. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Firstly, a massive thank you to Dominic Christie for becoming a new $5 patron on Patreon. Your monthly contribution is truly appreciated and allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. Finally, I'd like to send a thank you to all patrons and sponsors who support the show financially with their monthly contribution. Whether it's $1 or $5, your support allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to sponsor the show because the podcast helps you, please visit boytosleep.com. As always, thank you to everybody who left a review or took the time to reach out to me during the week. If you would like, you can say hello at com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at boytosleep. If you're not already, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The South Country Chapter 1 The name of South Country is taken from a poem by Mr. Hilaire Balak, beginning When I am living in the Midlands, they are sodden and unkind. I light my lamp in the evening, my work is left behind. And the great hills of the South Country come back into my mind. The name is given to the south of England as distinguished from the Midlands, North England and West England by the Severn. The poet is thinking particularly of Sussex and of South Downs. In using the term, I am thinking of all that country which is dominated by the Downs, or by the English Channel, or by both. Cornwall and East Anglia have been admitted only for the sake of contrast. Roughly speaking, it is the country south of the Thames and Severn, and east of Exmoor, and it includes, therefore, the counties of Kent Sussex, Surrey, Hampshire, Berkshire, Wiltshire, Dorset, and part of Somerset. East and west across it go ranges of chalk hills, their sides smoothly hollowed by nature and the Marlburner, or sharply scored by old roads. On their lower slopes, they carry the chief woods of the South Country. Their coombs are often fully fledged with trees, and sometimes their high places are crowned with beech or fir. But they are most admirably themselves, when they are bare of all but grass and a few bushes of gorse and juniper. And some yew, and their ridges make flowing but infinitely variable clear lines against the sky. Sometimes they support a plateau of flint and clay, which slopes gradually to the level of the streams. Sometimes they fall away to the vales in well defined ledges. First a long curving slope, then a plain of cornland, and below that a steep but lesser slope, covered with wood and, then again, grassland or sandy heaths and rivers. Except on the plateau, the summits have few houses and very small hamlets, the first terrace has larger villages and even a town or two, but most of the towns are beneath on the banks of the rivers, and chiefly where they are broadest, near the sea, or on the coast itself. The rivers flow mainly north and south, and can have but a short course before they enter the sea, on the south. Or the Thames on the north. Those I remember best are the Stowes, the two Rothers, but especially the one which joins the Arun, the Medway, the Len, the Eden, the Holling, the Tace, the Ouse, the Itchen, the Meon, the Wey, the Mole, the Kennet, the Ray, the Winterborns, the Wiltshire Avon, the Ebel, and many little waters running gold over new forest gravel, or crystal over the chalk of Hampshire, and not least of all, that unlucky rivulet, the Wandle, once a nymph that walked among her sisters. Nor can I omit, the Wiltshire and Berkshire Canal, as it was fifteen years ago between Swindon and Dauncey, an unfrequented byway through a quiet dairy country and full of pike and tench among the weeds and under the tall water docks and willow herbs, which even then threatened to subdue it as they now have done, the chief roads make south, southeast, southwest, and west from London. Almost the only road going east and west and not touching London is the old road known between Winchester and Canterbury as the Pilgrim's Way. Most of the towns are small market towns, manufacturing chiefly beer or they are swollen, especially in the neighbourhood of London, as residential quarters on lines of railway, or as health and pleasure resorts on the sea. But any man used to maps will be wiser on these matters in an hour than I am for what I have sought is quiet and as complete a remoteness as possible from towns, whether of manufacturers or of markets or of cathedrals. I have used many good maps in my time, largely to avoid the towns, but I confess that I prefer to do without them and to go. If I have some days before me, guided by the hills, or the sun, or a stream, or if I have one day only, in a rough circle, trusting by taking a series of turnings to the left, or a series to the right, to take much beauty by surprise, and to return at last to my starting point. On a day dull or cloudy night I have often no knowledge of the points on the compass. I never go out to see anything. The signboards thus often astonish me. I wish, by the way, that I had noted down more of the names on the signboards at the crossroads there is a wealth of poetry in them, as in that which points, by a ford to, first to Pulna and Ringwood, second to Gawley and Fording Bridge, third to Linwood and Broomey, and another pointing to Fording Bridge to Ringwood, and to Cuckoo Hill and Furze Hill, and another in the parish of Pentlow, pointing to Foxearth and Sudbury, the Cavendish and Clare, and to Balchamps and Yaldham. Castles, churches, old houses, of extraordinary beauty or interest, have never worn out any of my shoe leather, except by accident. I like to come upon them, usually without knowing their names and legends, but do not lament when chance takes me a hundred times out of their way. Nor have I ever been to Marlow to think about Shelley, or to Winterslow for Hazlitt's sake, and I enter Burton many times without remembering Gibbon, They would move me no more than the statue of a man and a fat horse, which a grateful countryside erected to William III in the market square at Petersfield. I prefer any country church or chapel to Winchester, or Chichester or Canterbury Cathedral, just as I prefer... All round my hat or summer is Icumen Inn, to Beethoven. Not that I dislike the cathedrals, or that I do not find many pleasures among them, but they are incomprehensible and not restful. I feel when I am within them, that I know why a dog bays at the moon, They are much more difficult, or rather I am more conscious in them of my lack of comprehension than the hills or the sea, and I do not like the showman, the smell and look of the museum, the feeling that it is admiration or nothing, and all the well-dressed and fly-blown people around about. I sometimes think that religious architecture is a dead language, majestic but dead, that it was never a popular language. Have some of these buildings lived too long, been too well preserved so as to oppress our little days with too permanent an expression of the passing things The truth is that, though the past allures me, and to discover a cathedral for myself would be an immense pleasure, I have no historic sense and no curiosity. I mention these trivial things because they may be important to those who read what I am paid for writing. I have read a great deal of history in fact, a university gave me a degree out of respect for my apparent knowledge of history, but I have forgotten it all, or it has got into my blood and is present in me in a form which defies evocation or analysis. But as far as I can tell, I am pure of history. Consequently, I prefer the old brick houses round the Cathedral and that avenue of archaic, bossy limes to the Cathedral itself, with all its turbulent quiet and vague antiquity. The old school, also close at hand. I was there after the end of the term once and two boys were kicking a football in a half-walled court. It was bright, cold, windy and an April afternoon and the ancient brick was penetrated with their voices and the sound of the ball and I thought there was nothing that could be lovelier than being on that court the pleasant walls and the broad playing fields in a sight of a smooth, noble hill, and a temple of dark firs on top. I was not thinking of Winchester, or of any one older than the fondest son of that mother, more than mother and little of him but was merely caught up by and with the harmony of man and his work, of two children playing, and of the green downs and windy sky. And so I travel, armed only with myself, an avaricious and often libertine and fickle eye and ear, in pursuit not of knowledge, not of wisdom, but of one whom to pursue is never to capture. Politics, the drama, science, racing, reforms and preservations, divorces, book clubs, nearly everything with the average and the superior and the intelligent man is thinking of. I cannot grasp my mind refuses to deal with them, and when they are discussed, I am given to making answers like, In Kilv there is no weathercock. I expect there are others as unfortunate and superfluous men, such as the sanitation, improved housing, police, charities, medicine of our wonderful civilization. Saves from the fate of the Cuckoo's foster brothers. They will perhaps follow my meanders and understand. The critics also will help. They will understand it is their trade. How well they know what I ought, or at least ought not to do. I must, they have said, avoid the manner of the worst oleographs, must not be affected, though the recipe is not to be had, must beware of over-excitation of the colour sense. In slow course of years, we acquire a way of expression hopelessly inadequate as we plainly see when looking at the methods of great poets, of beautiful women, of athletes, of politicians, but still gradually fitted to the mind as an old walking stick to the hand that has worn and been worn by it, full of our weakness as of our strength, of our blindness as of our vision, the man himself, the poor man it may be. And I live by writing, since it is impossible to live, by not writing in an age not of gold but of brass. Unlearned, incurious, but finding deepest ease and joy out of doors, I have gone about the South Country these twenty years and more on foot, especially in Kent between Maidstone and Ashford and Round Penshurst, in Surrey between London, Guildford and Hawley, in Hampshire round Petersfield, in Wiltshire between Wootton Bassett, Swindon and Savernake. The people are almost foreign to me, the more so because country people have not yet been thrown into quite the same confusion as townspeople, and therefore look awkwardly upon those who are not in the trade. Writing is an unskilled labour, and not a trade, not on the land and not idle, but I have known something of two or three men and women, and have met a few dozen more. Yet is this country, though I am mainly Welsh, a kind of home, as I think it is more than any other to those modern people who belong nowhere. Here they prefer to retire Here they take their holidays in multitudes. For it is a good foster mother, ample-bosomed, mild and homely. The lands of wild coast, of mountains, of myriad chimneys offer no such welcome. They have their race, their speech and ways, and are jealous. You must be a man of the sea, of the hills to dwell there at ease but the south is tender and will harbour anyone her quiet people resent intrusion quietly so that many do not notice the resentment these are the home counties a man can hide away in them the people are not hospitable but the land is Yet there are days and places which send us in search of another kind of felicity than that which dwells under the downs, when, for example, the dark wild of Ashdown, or of Wilma, some parcel of heathery land, with tufted pines and pale wandering roads, rises all dark and stormy, out of the gentle veil or on such an evening as when the sky is solemn blue save at the horizon where it is faint gold and between the blue and the gold across the northwest lies an ashen waste of level cloud this sky and its new moon and evening star below Is barred by the boles of beaches. Through them, the undulations of deserted ploughland are all but white and dewy with grass and weed. Underfoot winds a disused path amid almost overlapping dogs' mercury. The earth is like an exhausted cinder, cold, silent dead compared with the great act in the sky. Suddenly, a dog fox barks, with melancholy and malice in the repeated hoarse yells, a sound that awakens the wildest past out of the wood and the old path. He passes by me at the trot, pausing a little to bark, he vanishes, but not his voice, into the wood, and he returns still barking and passes me again, filling the wood and the comb below with a sound that has nothing to match it, except that ashen waste in the beech barred, cold blue, and golden sky against which the fox is carved in moving ebony Or again when a rude, dark headland rises out of the midst of the plain into the evening sky. The woods seem but just freed from the horror of primeval sea. If that is not primeval sea washing their bases, Capella hangs low, pale large, moist and trembling, almost engulfed between two horns of the wood upon the headland, the frailest beacon of hope, still fluttering from the storm out of which the land is emerging. Then, or at home, looking at a map of Britain, the west calls out of Wiltshire, and out of Cornwall and Devon beyond, out of Monmouth and Glamorgan and Gower and Carmarthen, with a voice of dead Townsends, Easterways, Thomases, Trahans, Merindas, Seamen and Mountain Men, Westward, for men of this island, lies the sea. Westward are the great hills. In a mere map, the west of Britain is fascinating. The great features of that map, which make it something more than a picture, to the imperfectly copied by laborious childish pens, are the great promontories of Carnarvon of Pembroke, of Gower, and of Cornwall, jutting out into the Western Sea, like the features of a grim large face, such a face as is carved on a ship's prow. These protruding features, even on a small-scale map, thrill the mind with a sense of purpose and spirit, They yearn, they peer out ever to see, as if using eyes and nostrils to savour the utmost scent of it, as if themselves calling back to the call of the waves. To the eyes of a child they stand for adventure. They are lean and worn and scarred with the strife and watching Then gradually, into the mind of the child, comes the story that justifies and, still more, inspires and seems to explain those westward-pointing promontories, for out towards them continually have the conquered races of the world retreated. And their settlements give those corners a strangeness and a charm to our fantastic sympathies. Out from these conquerors, in their turn, have gone to found a legend like the Welsh Madoc, an empire like the men of Devon. The blood of conquered and conqueror is in our veins and it flushes the cheek at the side of thought of the West. Each man of us is as ancient and complicated, as lofty-spired, and as deep-vaulted as cathedrals and castles old, and in those lands our crypts and dark foundations are dimly remembered. We look out towards them from the high camps at Battlesbury, and Barbary the lines of the downs go trooping along to them at night even in the bosom of the south country when the tranquil bells are calling over the corn at twilight the westward going hills where the sun has fallen draw the heart away and fill us with a desire to go on and on forever that same way. When in the clear, windy dawn, thin clouds like traveller's joy are upon the high air, it seems that up there also, in those placid spaces, they travel and know the joy of the road and the sun feeding on the blue as a child said yesterday as Lucretius said before, goes the desired way. London also calls, making the needle whirl in the compass, for in London also a man may live as up a great river wide as any sea, and over some of the fairest of the south country hangs the all-night glimmer of the city warning, threatening, beckoning Anon. Some of this country has already perished, or is so ramparted about that there is no stranger country in the world unless it be those perpendicular valleys cloven among the blue mountains. Their floors level and of the purest grass but accessible only at the end nearest the plain, where the cleft is sometimes so narrow that not even a dog can enter. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this story. If you're still not quite sleepy yet, Please feel free to listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you a new one very soon. In the meantime, good night.